Turn your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be continuing with the greatest story ever told. It is the Sermon on the Mount, as told by Jesus himself. I would suggest to you that the Sermon on the Mount plus the Ten Commandments are the foundation of Western civilization. It is the, this Sermon on the Mount is probably the most uh, concise collection of the, of the teachings of Jesus that revolutionized the world. This Sermon on the Mount was a call to leave the, leave the shallowness that many of the religious people had of their day and take her to another level. Jesus basically took the people from where they were, and what his call was is this. The whole context of this Sermon on the Mount was, began with the word repent, which suggested, I want you to turn from the way you were, and I want you to change your attitudes, your values, and your priorities. Can you say that? Your attitudes, your values, and your priorities. And I want you to make some changes, and I want you to come and follow me. The idea that you can just add Jesus to your life and keep going the way you're going is an unbiblical notion. I liken it to the fact that many people think that they become a Christian by they come to church and they have an emotional moment and they shake the preacher's hand and it's like they pull their car over to the side of the road and say, Jesus, would you just get in the back seat? I'd like for you to ride with me. And they just keep going where, where they, their intent was. But to really be a Christian is then you pull that car to the side of the road and you get out of the driver's seat, you take the keys out, and you say, Now, Jesus, I want to give you the keys of my life and I want you to drive wherever you want to go and I'm going to follow you. Now, that may be simplistic, but that is the essence of being a Christian. Jesus is not... He didn't want to just be a part of our life. He wants our life to revolve around Him. And His great promise was filled with reward for those that would follow Him. And the Sermon on the Mount has been a series of teachings to show you everything from how to be happy, the Beatitudes, that is, how to find true peace and happiness in life. See, happiness not just a momentary consumerism or some pleasure moment, but true happiness that affects the depths of one's soul. We talked about the Beatitudes, about being salt and light, about the Old Testament law, about murder, about adultery, about marriage, about our oaths, telling the truth, about loving our enemies. And last week we talked about, oh, well, actually the last week that I was here was about the Lord's Prayer. And hopefully you got one of those prayer guides and have been using it every day. If not, there's, there's some on the back. Well, tonight we want to talk about two things. We want to talk about fasting, what Jesus had to say about fasting. And then he began, uh, begins a series that we'll take a couple weeks with. He wants to talk about money and material things. He wants to talk about the fact that we cannot serve two masters, that uh, he wants to talk about worry. He wants to talk about seeking first the kingdom of God. So let's uh, step into this together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. This is part 6 of the series. And you can pick up any, of course, on our webpage if you, if you missed them. All the notes are there and everything. Matthew 6, 16, Jesus said, moreover, when you fast. Now, moreover, he is continuing a thought. Now, remember, if you can think with me, Jesus is basically doing a little bit of comparison here because he's basically said, when you give, let your giving be in secret. That is, don't let your left hand know what your right's doing, as opposed to doing giving to be seen by by men. So he talked about giving, and then he talked about praying, the same thing. He said, when you pray, don't, you know, don't pray just so other people can see you. Now, he's not condemning public prayer, but he's saying, basically, the real motivation is not about other people in a religious setting. The motivation of your heart needs to be that it's you and I in your prayer closet. And now he's going to do part three. So then he says, moreover, when you fast, and Jesus didn't say, if you fast, I'd like to cut that out of the Bible. How about you? Does anybody like to fast in here? Can you kind of see your hand? Uh, I, I don't either. I've got to tell the truth, and I don't do it as much as I should. You're pretty quiet. You fast from breakfast to lunch and then from lunch to dinner, huh? 
and then before time you go to bed. Well, anyway, Jesus said, when you fast, tell your neighbor, when you fast, don't be so quiet. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. Now, what was a hypocrite? Yeah, pretender. What else? He was acting. Okay, so what Jesus is basically saying, you can be in the world of religion and be play acting. You can be doing outward things that appear to make you righteous, but having I mean, a righteousness is not about the outward. Righteousness begins, you know, in our hearts, in the relationship with Christ. It's the motivation. It's why we do what we do. Don't be like the hypocrites. Remember, the hypocrites gave so other people could see their giving. The hypocrites would pray so other people could hear their loud prayers or hear their, you know, their eloquent prayers. Jesus said, don't do that. Um, and don't be like the hypocrites uh, with a sad countenance. Now, basically, is, is the whole thrust of this is they're fasting to draw attention to themselves. And Jesus is saying, don't you do that. They disfigure their faces so they may be, appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And all three occasions, whether it was the giving, the praying, and now the fasting, Jesus was saying there's reward involved. You can either get it now if you do it just in your context with other people, or if you're doing it genuinely unto me, I'll reward you one day when, when on that great day. And that's the great, uh, that's the great separator. But you can have your full reward and go through the whole church routine because you're doing it for people to see you. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so you don't appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in where? That secret place. And your father who sees in secret will do what? He will reward you openly. So let's uh, kind of peek into this uh, a bit about this. Fasting just simply by definition is abstaining from food. Uh, it is abstaining from not only food, but it could be abstaining from drinking, from bathing. Uh, there was one required fast day in the Jewish faith. It was on the Day of Atonement. They weren't allowed to eat, drink, to bathe, or anoint uh, themselves with oil. Anointing yourself with oil is like, you know, putting lotion on your hands. They would do it on their hands. They could do their head, whatever the case may be. But on the fast, you would, you would limit not only an intake of food, but limit yourself from pleasures. Uh, in Daniel's day, there's what's called a Daniel's fast. A lot of the kids were doing that. Where in the book of Daniel, Daniel abstained from meats and sweets and those extra things, though he still ate vegetables and fruits and things. There's different types of fasts of abstaining. Uh, I was thrilled that... Uh, Tara is teaching our young preteens they're fasting from television one day or they're fasting from the Internet or fasting from texting. They're doing something not just for self-denial, but to set themselves apart to God. And that's the huge thing. In other words, if you were going to do a fast to the Lord and, and, and you would not eat lunch that day, you wouldn't just go to the mall and shop to pass the time away. The best thing to do would be is to find a place to come and pray. Just say, come down to the church and say, I want to come and spend the afternoon in the sanctuary, spend my lunchtime in the sanctuary drawing near to God. And that was the real purpose of a spiritual fast was to draw near to God. But it had been kind of incorporated in, in, in their religious scene as well. And hypocrites would do it in such a fashion that people would notice them and notice what they're doing. Jesus said, don't you do that. Now, how many believe fasting is, is literally for us today as well? It, it, it really is. It's a practice, and I, and I confess ashamedly, I don't do it as much as I used to. Um, but it is, it is a practice that draws a person closer to God. When you deny yourself, whether it's the most basic things like food or some form of pleasure, it's very humbling to your soul. 
I find that if my, it's, it's almost like your soul and your spirit are in competition. So when I say your soul, I mean your desires, your, 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 you know, your base kind of desires, attitudes, and one's trying to get ahead. Well, when you fast, you are kind of beating down that part of you and you are allowing yourself spiritually to become stronger. But you're also making yourself aware of your great need and dependence of God. When you abstain from food, you just you, may, you you are aware of how much you need it, and that God is your source. Let me give you a real neat scripture, Isaiah fifty-eight. It's worth a looking at, or you can look on the screen, Isaiah fifty-eight, and it kind of picks up the same thought there in Isaiah that Jesus had, but he's talking about a proper fast. Now look in verse one. Shout out loud, and this is about twelve verses. Shout out loud and don't hold back. Shout out like a trumpet. Tell my people, and this is God saying to Isaiah to prophesy to the people. Tell them that what they've done against their God. And tell the family of Jacob about their what? Sins. They still come every day looking for me, and they want to learn my ways. They act just like a nation that does what's right, that obeys the commands of God. They ask me to judge them fairly. They want God to be near them. And listen to what they say. They say, to honor you, we had special days when we fasted. But you didn't see. In other words, our spiritual act of fasting, it didn't seem like it did any good whatsoever. Here we are, we're not eating food, and you're not answering our prayers. We humble ourselves to honor you, but you don't even notice. Now listen to what God says. Isn't it amazing how God looks into the heart? But the Lord says, you do what pleases yourselves on these special days. You're unfair to your workers. On these special days when you fast, you argue, you fight. You hit each other with your fists. Well, you can't do these things as you do now and believe that your prayers will be heard in heaven. So here's what you've got to know. Fasting is not, it's more than just not eating. Fasting is setting yourself apart to God. Fasting is one more way that you draw yourself near to God. Look at verse 5. This kind of special day is not what I want, says the Lord. It's not the way I want people to be sorry for what they've done. Again, now it introduces the act of contrition when we fast. Again, as I draw myself near to God, I, I look into the mirror of His Word, the mirror of the Spirit, and I realize my shortcomings as I draw near. I don't want people just to bow their heads like a plant and wear rough cloth and lie in ashes to show their sadness. No, this is what I want you to do on your special days when you fast. But do you think this is what the Lord wants? I'll tell you the kind of fast I want. Now listen to this. The fast that God wants is freeing people that you've put in prison unfairly and undoing their chains. We talk about justice now. Free those to whom you are unfair and stop their hard labor. These are people that may be working for you, an employee. Uh, verse 7, I want you to share your food with the hungry. And I want you to bring poor homeless people in your homes. If you were to fast tomorrow on a Thursday, you could go down to the homeless shelter. And you could even eat because they feed them down there. But, I mean, you, you, you could take whatever money that you would have spent on lunch if you would have went out to eat tomorrow and give it to the director of the homeless. You, you understand what I'm saying? But, but these are ways that gained God's attention. Share your food. Bring the homeless into your home. When you see someone who have no clothes, what are you supposed to do? Ooh, give him yours and don't refuse to help him. This is way more than just not eating. Uh, help your own relatives. And then, verse 8, the Bible says your light will shine like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your God will walk before you and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. You'll call out and the Lord will answer. You'll cry out and he'll say, here I am. If you stop making trouble for others, 
if you stop using cruel words and pointing your finger at others, so now we've got our speech, we've got our actions towards people, but if you feed the hungry, you take care of the needs of those that are troubled, then your light will shine in the darkness and your brightness like the sunshine at noon. And it just goes on and on about God rebuilding and God repairing. So that's a scripture worth taking home and meditating on and thinking about is the true fast that God would call that it's not just not eating. Or not drinking is what makes us religious, but it, we set ourselves apart to God in our hearts and it manifests in changed behavior. See, the whole thing Jesus is looking at as he introduces to us this Sermon on the Mount is he's looking for a new set of attitudes, a new set of priorities, and a new set of behavior. Okay? Uh, let's keep going here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Now, he begins a, a, a series of verses. We're going to look at maybe three or four more, but he introduces a, a somewhat lengthy section on money and material things. And then he goes on into a lengthy section on worry and material things. Perhaps one of the most pivotal verses there is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew six thirty three, and then what? All these things will be added unto you. So maybe we've got maybe over two weeks here, maybe 12, 15 verses that we're going to look at. But the central point of it all is, is God wants to be first and money and material things second. And if you put money and material things first and God second, it's not going to go well for you. Because Jesus is going to say, it's impossible to have me leading the Lord of your life, but yet you having an idol out of money and material things. So let's kind of look at it. We'll look at a verse at a time. This first little section, and again, I'm looking at the sections as they're laid out in the Spirit-Filled Life Bible. I would encourage you, that's, the, that's my favorite Bible. I've got lots of Bibles. I, I'll pick up a new one every couple of years and start writing new notes in it. But the one I continually go back to is called the Spirit-Filled Life Bible. And what it is, it, it's, a, it's, it's a great study Bible. It has tremendous resources. It's probably the best, whether you want to call it Spirit-Filled or Charismatic or Pentecostal, uh, that, 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 that uh, um, uh, vein of Christian teaching, it's, it supports those truths that many of the more traditional Orthodox or Evangelical Bibles would leave out. But it's, it's my favorite. Jack Hayford, extremely educated man, was, was the edit, editor of that Bible. Uh, verse 19 don't store up treasures on earth. Now, treasures, by definition, is riches. It is expensive things. It is wealth. And it is valuable things that you might own. Jesus is saying, don't store up treasures here on earth. Moths will eat them and rust will destroy them. Or you, he might have even added today, the stock market can drop and it can disappear overnight. He might have said, you can lose it. The home can be foreclosed on that you were flipping. I mean, in this world, things are, 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 are uh, tenuous at best. Thieves can break in and steal. Um, but look at verse 20, the contrast now. Store your treasures in heaven where the moth and rust can't destroy, the thieves can't break in and steal. And verse 21 is, is again, it's this pivotal sense of, of, of these, this passage. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. It's a New Living Translation. Wherever your treasure is, which simply means this. If your treasure is in my hobby, turkey hunting, and you take every discretionary dollar to buy the newest gun, the newest bullets, the newest outfit, and you, and you go to every state in the Union to try to kill a turkey, and you put all your money in your hobby, or how about yours, whatever yours is? You know, it could just be in your house. It could be in your yard. It could be in anything else. And none of those things are bad. I don't think it's sinful to hope 
go turkey hunting. I hope not. I don't think it's sinful for you to play golf. I don't think it's sinful to play ball. I don't think it's sinful to have a nice car, to have an antique car and keep it polished. But if that becomes first, and this is one of the greatest challenges, I think, for we as American people, because at least up to this time, we have been a prosperous nation. So I'm telling what the future may hold, but we have been a prosperous nation, and we've pretty much been able to do what we want to do. Now, I want you to think about this, because Jesus is saying that your treasure can either be right here on earth, or your treasure can be in heaven. That's why your consistent giving is so important. See, it's not just a means of paying church bills. It is a means of you keeping your priorities in order, so that you're investing a little bit by little bit. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's, you know, you've got the little Haiti can sitting around your house and, and it's your tithe and maybe it's a Bible that goes in that globe and, and maybe you help a kid go to camp or, or maybe you just do the homeless thing. And, you know, but you're investing money in the kingdom of God, see, and that is huge, 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 huge. You don't have to give it all, quote, to the Lord, but if you don't have a, a, a significant portion, I don't mean just a tip, if you don't have some something to where it, it, it has, it has, sacrifice in your life in terms of your material things, it, your heart can be steered away from the things of the Lord. Because I don't know about you, um, just because I've been a Christian for a longer period of time doesn't mean these appetites for things of the world get less and less. You can get used to living without your, your tithe or whatever the case is, and that 90%, and, and your heart can still shift away from the Lord. And this is what Jesus is most concerned about, is he's concerned about where your heart is. See, the issue is not money, but it's the issue of the heart. What's the greatest commandment in all the Bible? You are too. Yeah. Yeah. With all of your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second love your neighbor is yourself. So Jesus is saying is, I don't want co uh, competition. Now, Jesus does not prohibit material possessions, nor does he prohibit the enjoyment of material things. Paul was very clear in 1 Timothy 6 when he says that God has given us things to enjoy. But what we're looking at is we're looking at not is, you know, have money and enjoy it or not. It's which is first, money and material things or the kingdom of God. And it's evidence about you, you show me your bank statement uh, and your calendar and I'll tell you how important the Lord Jesus is to you. Um, what Jesus is talking about here, I believe, is he's forbidding a selfish and extravagant lifestyle or a lifestyle built around extravagant materialism which basically when you are the center of your world. And that is the great challenge, is that giving helps us take our eyes off the mirror and our eyes onto other people in the kingdom of God. Now, the Old Testament encourages savings. I don't think Jesus is telling us not to save. When he's saying don't store up treasures on earth, Joseph in the Old Testament is a premier example of someone who was able to save for a number of years and he cared for the nation. We're told in the book of Proverbs to look at the ant. She stores up her food in the summertime, so she's able to live on it in the winter. I mean, so the Bible is not teaching us not to save. The Bible says in Proverbs several times, the wise man sees evil and what? Hides or prepares himself, but the simple go on and are punished. So I don't believe the Bible teaches that we're not to be people that save, but yet at the same time it's very clear that if you're just storing up stuff on this earth, if you're not careful, you can be depending on your stuff to take care of you rather than God. See, whatever level of investment that you have today, whether whatever it is, whether it's in the stock market or a piece of real estate or a gold coin or something, if you're not careful, you can trust in that to take care of you rather than give me this day my daily bread. Um, Jesus had a lot to say about money in our lives. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Remember the parable of the rich young ruler? When Jesus looked at that man, 
and he and this rich young ruler had said, "Listen, Lord Jesus, I have <laughs> I have served you all my life. I have obeyed the commandments. I've done what you said." And Jesus said, "You lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me." What's the Bible said? His face was sad. His his countenance dropped, and he went away sad because. Or maybe more accurate to say, the great wealth had him. And one of the great, great challenges in life, I see it all the time, and I know people, when they allow riches, rare is the person that can have a lot of money and a lot of things and still be humble and dependent on God. Most people, when their coffers are filled, they don't do that much praying. It's, it's not an accident that in the book of James, the Bible says that it is the poor who are rich in, rich in faith. I think that was reading just a couple days ago. It just we, we skip over that, and, and the Bible is not embellishing poverty, but it's simply saying is that when you are struggling, when you have a need that you're not able to meet, you have to have faith in God and you have to reach out to God like no other time. But the danger is is if we are living within our own little kingdom, we get in big trouble. Look at Luke chapter twelve. Jesus kind of slaps you upside the face with this one. Twelve twenty nine. Don't be concerned about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your Father already knows your needs. You seek the kingdom of God above all else, and He'll give you everything you need. Now listen, don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Now look at verse 33. Here's what I want you to see. Sell your possessions and give to those in need, and this will store up treasure for you in heaven. Could you do that? Could you do that today? Could you sell your possessions and give to those in need? See, usually when we talk about giving to God in the context of church, it's giving your tithe, which is a pretty good bit. It's 10%. I mean, that's a lot, you know, or maybe an extra offering. But here, Jesus, in, in, in two different scriptures, to the rich young ruler and now in Luke, I want you to sell your possessions and give to the poor. And I'm concerned sometimes that we may be oblivious to the fact that we are too much in love with this world because the things of this world have captured us. And I, maybe this may just may be doing just a little introspection. Um, anyway, but Jesus is pretty, pretty, pretty strong there. The purses of heaven will never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. And no thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Let me remind you of the words of Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, 9. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. So, listen, it's my prayer that every one of you would just have your socks blessed off and God would prosper you financially, but I'm telling you, there's a danger that can be associated with a heart that goes after money. The same scripture in First Timothy 6 tells us to be content with the things that God given us. And guess what he said? He didn't just say with, I don't know what, with the car you have and the size TV you got and with the cell phone you got and with the spare shoes you got and, or the, the, the pair of shoes, the dozens of shoes you got and the dozens of blue jeans and all those things. He said, Listen, if you've got food and clothing, be content with that. And perhaps that's a prayer that we need to be praying. Well, Lord, would you help me be content with what I have and not be driven to have more? Because I find in my own life, no matter how much I have, it's never enough to do what I want. Am I, I, am I the only one being honest here? 
no matter how much you've got, there's always something else. My wife bought me a little turkey outfit for, for my birthday and, and it looked green leaves on it instead of the brown leaves, okay, because springtime's supposed to be green. And then I saw my brothers and my brothers were cooler than mine. Oh, yeah. He had zippers on his. Yeah, he had zippers for pockets. And he had this little thing that would hold the little turkey collar. And I thought, shoot. And I should buy it. Can't send it back. I've already worn it. You don't do that, do you? I don't know where the line is with this, but I'm telling you, Jesus said you... Well. Look at this next verse. Now, this next verse, it has to do with money. This is a weird verse. The eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are good, this is right after the money now. Right after the money verse about that we just read. Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, what does that mean? Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Everybody go, oh, oh. Look at verse 24. No man can serve two masters. And now we're talking about money again. So this is not some disjointed verse that Jesus just said, we're over here, now we're going to go way over there, we're going to go over here. It's right in the center here. And the best I can give you, this is, this is an odd little verse here. It's a difficult interpretation, but what makes the most sense seems to be that whatever distracts you from your full devotion to God, whether it's wealth or anxiety, worry, needs to be dealt with. See, it, it, it's something about this, this, this light and darkness and, and, and in... An evil eye in, in, in the Jewish, uh, in their history, was a metaphor for being stingy. And a good eye was a metaphor for generosity. So if you had a bad eye, it was like stingy, darkness. If you had a good eye, you were a generous person, which is very consistent with what Jesus was teaching here. So it's kind of like, what, what are you allowing to come in? And what's, what, what's, what's kind of coming out of you? Um, this person with this good or healthy eye, if your eyes are good, your body will be full of light. You have an intent to serve God and not mammon. Mammon was the money God. Uh, it was like the whole system of materialism. A person with a bad eye is selfish and covetous and, and, and miserly. Uh, then I read in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, this word means singleness of purpose. It means undivided loyalty when it's talking about a good eye. So what the Lord is looking for is single purpose when it comes to money and material things. A single loyalty is Christ is first and not second anything. In other words, if it's tax time, it's more important to be honest and save 20 bucks or 200 bucks or 2,000 bucks. I mean, it's almost like any time we're confronted with the money thing, if we let the money God get in control of our life, you know, it could be a credit card that comes in the mail. And that's the way we used to, you know, relieve our stress is go shopping or, or, or something like that. I mean, it, it, money can just get on you and it can just control your life. And I promise you, there is so much marketing that's targeted towards you that, that, that your mailbox, your inbox, your every box box you have is filled with stuff to tell you about something you don't have that you need. And you think it's tough for you. I tell you, it just blows my mind, the pressure that children have today. So anyway, um, this sense of blindness will make your whole life full of darkness. If you are distracted by earthly riches, you'll be blind and you'll be led to, to what amounts to total darkness. 
Now let me let me look at this one last verse and then we'll, we'll, we'll interact with what we've read today. You can't serve God and riches. Look at verse 24. You cannot serve two masters. Now, in, in, in the world in which they live, people own slaves. And when the Bible talks about slavery, it's not because it advocates it. It's just what was going on in their day. It was the culture of their day. And, and a slave was absolutely in every way controlled by his master. And it was impossible to have two masters in your life. In other words, you couldn't have two people that controlled everything about you. Maybe if you've ever been someone who worked for someone and you had two bosses, you in that situation where you're answering to two people at the same time and both of them want you to whatever they want you to do, you know, run the errand, drive the truck, type the letter, spend the money, whatever. And it's like one says this and one says that. And you cannot do that. I mean, it's very emphatic in this scripture. You cannot serve two masters and, and one master. You're either going to hate one and love the other or you'll follow one and refuse to follow the other. You cannot serve both God and worldly riches. Or your King James says mammon. Uh, you, you cannot serve God and material things. It's like only one can be first. And it's either going to be God or it's going to be the material things. If you want God, material things have to become second. And that's where I think you're giving, you're tithing, you're honoring God, your obedience to the Holy Spirit. See, a hard thing for me to do is when some extra money gets put in my hand. I see two people nodding their hand. It's like, you already, that's yours. And God says, yeah. I guess it's my wife that's like that, not me. I'm sorry, preaching about Linnell. Mammon is an Aramaic word for possessions or money. And it's, uh, it's almost personified as an idol or a power that enslaves the world. And the Bible says you cannot serve God in money. And then he's going to go into this next section for next week about worry. And see, the whole sense of worry is wrapped up in the thought is, I'm not going to have enough for tomorrow. And the sense here is, can you not trust God enough for God to take care of you? See, we've lived most of, virtually my, my whole life has been lived with in a life of, of, of having enough. Even when I was young and we didn't have enough, we had enough. We always had food to eat. We didn't have three cars in our house, but we had a car. You know, we didn't have, you know, central air, but we had an air conditioner. Praise the Lord, it was in my room when I was a kid. That was a long time ago. You, you know, I mean, I didn't know we had a lot, didn't have a lot, but it, I've known that pretty much all my life. Most of us have too. But there may come a day in America where we really have to pray, give me this day my daily bread. See, we've just lived in, a, in, a, in, in an America where we've just got used to the check being there, the credit card working. I mean, listen, you know, there was a, a poll this morning I heard on Fox News. 89% of Americans that were surveyed responded to their poll. 89% believe that America could have a total economic collapse. Think about that. 89% of the people think that the whole thing could just shut down. And these people in Washington are just spending and borrowing and saving us all. So God may allow the thing to come to a grinding halt, and he may teach us once again. Give me this day my daily bread and teach me to be content with what I have. And if the God of money is dominating my life, you're in for a real problem. Okay, I'm done talking. Tell me what you, how can you apply what you've been hearing Jesus say? He's taught everything from fasting to money. Some, something you learned tonight. We've got about three or four minutes. Real quickly. Be thankful for what you've got. And isn't that why we pray over our food? 
Recognizing God as our source and being appreciative for it. All right, very good. Somebody else. Well, how can you apply this to your life? And you're enslaved to take care of the things that you buy. You've got to insure them. You've got to maintain them. You've got to service them. You've got to protect them. Yes. Yes. Because that's what's truly lasting. The things of this world will not last. We brought nothing into the world. We carry nothing out. Very good. Somebody else. See, the whole Christian experience is about the heart. It's not religious rules. It's not obligation and duty. It's not what you can't do. It's who you get to have relationship with, the Lord Jesus. And as, as our heart becomes submissive and tender and obedient to Him, our relationship with God just opens like a flower. Yeah. So that's our perspective. One last thought. There's a lot of unhappy people that have pursued things all their life and things didn't make them happy. And when they get to the end of their life, they realize they've wasted their life. Yeah. Honey, did you get anything out of that? Good. Well, thanks, Lord, for being able to come and just open the Bible a bit tonight and to be able to, to worship you tonight and just to hear wonderful music and, and praise that lifted our hearts and and, and thank you that people prayed for us tonight and, and uh, that we were just able to just draw just a little bit nearer to you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, as we go, and we pray that your presence would capture us afresh in Jesus' name. Amen.